I'm Talmadge Boston, and welcome to this edition of Cross-Examining History, where we explore American history and thought leadership through interviews with best-selling authors. Today's podcast interview is with noted Texas journalist, novelist, and now historian Stephen Harrigan. And in it, we talked about his new book, Big Wonderful Thing, A History of Texas, which came out on October 1st, 2019. Enjoy. As a lifelong Texan myself, I know how much we've needed a one-volume book of Texas whole history told in a real interesting perspective, kind of story after story after story from the very beginning up till now. But writing this history of Texas from beginning to end, in my mind, redefines the term Herculanean task. (laughs) So, So what exactly led you to take on this project? Well, I'd like to say it was my idea, but it wasn't. It was the uh, Dave Hamrick, who is the uh, director, or now the outgoing director, he's about to retire, of the University of Texas Press, came to me and asked if I'd be interested in writing a soup-to-nuts history of Texas. And at first, that was like such a daunting task that I just politely said, no thanks. But the more I thought about it, the more I realized it was something that it's going to be difficult for me to keep saying no to, partly because I had you know written a huge amount about Texas during my career as a novelist and as a, and as a journalist. And I'd lived in Texas for almost all of my life. I'd seen a lot of Texas history happen. Uh, and it, it just became something I couldn't quite you know, keep myself from doing it. I just felt like I realized I had a lot to say and a lot, there were a lot of great Texas stories that, that that I felt like I could tell in maybe a slightly different way uh, than those than, than books I read in the past. Yeah. Well, your book's prologue, which, which opens it, obviously, is about Dallas iconic figures, Big Tex, Fair Park, the Hall of State with its Hall of Heroes, and the 1936 Texas Centennial Exposition, as well as State Fair, uh, this is State Fair in in the last few years. But what was it about the State Fair that made it the right hook to begin your magnum opus? Well, what what it occurred to me as I was looking for a way to begin this book that I needed to signal to the reader that this book wasn't just going to be starting with, you know, uh, the, the formation of the earth you know, <laughs> and uh, bacteria and put animals crawling onto the surface of the world. It, I wanted it to, to be lively. I wanted it to, to seem like it was written uh, in a, at our present moment. And I thought the best way to do that would be to take stock of Texas more or less as we stand today, as we think about Texas today. And when I was thinking about how I could begin, I, the image of big techs catching on fire at the state fair in, I think, 2012 just sort of leapt into my consciousness. Uh, you know, big techs being the gigantic cowboy figure that, that stood in front of the uh, state, you know, loomed over the state fair for many years and, went and, and caught fire. And the idea of this cowboy 
giant cowboy in flames sort of made me think about the identity of Texas and how how transient and yet how permanent that identity can be. And the more I thought about it, the more I realized that, that Big Tex stands at the, at the site of the State Fair, which is also the site of the 1936 Centennial Exposition that you mentioned, which was the moment in Texas history when Texas itself decided on the 100th anniversary of its independence from Mexico that it was going to basically inform the world that it was here, <laughs> that it was mm-hmm. a, a place to be reckoned with, uh, that it had an identity that was all its own and not necessarily um, uh, you know, tied to that of the Confederacy or the defeated South in the Civil War. So I thought it was a kind of seminal moment that that centennial year in which Texas basically proclaimed itself uh, Mm -hmm. and wanted the world to notice and indeed put on a World's Fair so that it would. Now the title of your book, Big Wonderful Thing, comes from young Georgia O'Keeffe's reaction when she arrived in the Panhandle in 1912 as a 25-year-old artist and teacher. So what was it that grabbed you about O'Keeffe's observation about Texas? Well, the, quote, the, the title, Big Wonderful Thing, comes from a letter in which, which she wrote to a friend back east when she was, as you say, a young art teacher in, in, in the panhandle. And she wrote that, uh, I couldn't believe Texas was real, the same big wonderful thing that oceans and the highest mountains are. And I like the sound of that. I like the sound of the this sort of sense of discovery and optimism. And I... I I was thinking about that phrase when I, in fact, was in Canyon, Texas, and was looking at the house where Georgia O'Keeffe lived when she was a young painter and art art teacher. And you can still see the second floor dormer room in this house where she rented a room, and that her window faced east toward Palo Duro Canyon and the sunrise. And just the thought of of this young woman painting the sunrise all the time, uh, looking out towards new day every day, just got me kind of excited and made me think this is, this is a lot of people's experience of Texas, an experience of discovery, the idea that they think it's some just sort of endless desert, but in fact it's a place rich, very rich landscape and rich with possibility. Mm-hmm. You make a great comparison between Cabeza de Vaca and his Spanish colleagues meeting the Caranqua Indians and taking their first steps on the Texas coast in 1528, where the Caranquas who met them thought they, quote, came from the sky, close quote. And then you compare that to Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin landing on the moon in 1969, where their first word heard by mission control was Houston, tranquility base here, the eagle has landed. So connect the dots between the first explorer's steps on Texas and on the moon. Well, one of the words, one of the phrase that Buzz Aldrin used when he set foot on the moon, he was trying to come, trying to describe what he was seeing. And he said, uh, I think I've got this quote pretty much right. Beautiful, beautiful, magnificent desolation. And that, that echoed back for me to 
what the those Spanish castaways in 1528, the first Europeans, as far as we know, to set foot on Texas soil, or in this case, it was Texas sand, and they didn't really set foot on it; they washed ashore on it. And it, you know, that was probably somewhere around Galveston Island, and magnificent desolation describes that landscape. That landscape and the landscape of the moon. Uh, perfectly, I think. And it was interesting to me that, say, Cabeza de Vaca's, uh, in, his, in his group, washed ashore on Galveston Island toward the western tip or, or the next island over, Follett's Island, Island. They were only probably 60 or 70 miles from where Mission Control was located at the Johnson Space Center, to whom those those words uh, from Neil Armstrong were addressed, so it felt like uh, it felt like there was a closing of the circle in a way for me when I, I was was thinking about the moon landing in 1969 and the uh, you know the the Cabeza de Vaca washing up ashore in 1528. Now, one of the many fun things about your book is how you weave your own personal experiences into our state's history. For example, in the summer of 1978, you mentioned that you were part of a team of divers that swam in Matagorda Bay and tried to find LaSalle ships that had sunk there in the late 1600s. So what inspired you to integrate your own activities into your history book? Well, as I said at the beginning, I had... I had witnessed some Texas history firsthand. I've been a, I've been a you know, magazine writer most of my career. I started writing for Texas Monthly the year they began in 1973 or, or so. And so I had had the opportunity to to meet people, to write about people, and it felt you know, incorporating my own experiences and using myself as a relatively representing representative observer of Texas history felt like a way to to make the book friendlier to uh, to keep the reader less at an arm's length and, and invite him or her in a little bit and so and it just felt natural to do that to me uh, whenever whenever it seemed appropriate anyway now up through the Civil War of course Texas was a slave state and Stephen F. Austin even thought, quote, slavery was essential to the success of our part of the world, close quote. You say that in the 1840s, the slavery in Texas became the crisis of the crisis in the battle over slavery in the United States. So, so how did that happen, that we were the crisis of the crisis? Well, the, uh, Texas's annexation to the United States was a uh, tremendous sort of national paroxysm in which uh, you know, Texas desperately wanted to join the Union. It had been an independent republic for almost 10 years. But it was a slave economy. It was, it was founded on, on, on cotton as a major crop, and it depended upon enslaved labor. And, you know, Texas joining the Union was going to upset the balance of free and slave states and and uh, you know derail the you know, various compromises that had had sort of kept the you know the country more or less at peace. So uh, you know it was a, a wrench thrown into the works to say the least. And then of course that led to 
the war with Mexico, which then led to the Mexican session when, in which uh, the United States acquired, you know, basically most of the rest of, the, of, of what is now North America, part of its, of its territory. And that then led to yet another crisis about the extension of slavery. So Texas was, and then that ultimately, of course, led to the Civil War. So Texas was extremely uh, important in terms of the course of national history. And, uh, you know, it began with those first, you know, American colonists being, in, you know, coming into Mexico with Stephen F. Austin, you know, who depended on, on enslaved labor to make their economy work. Mm-hmm. Now, your book covers not only Texas's political and military history, but also highlights the history of Texas music and sports, and you make some fun connections between disparate times and people in our history. For example, what inspired you to compare Roger Staubach's Hail Mary pass to Drew Pearson in a 1975 postseason game against Minnesota to Sam Houston's victory at the Battle of San Jacinto in 1836. Well, they were both, uh, I thought they were both perfect come-from-behind moments. You know, basically, Sam Houston at, uh, you know, at the Battle of San Jacinto, and he'd, he'd run out of options. <laughs> you know, the clock was running down. Uh, he was, you know, he needed to get over the goal line. And, uh, you know, same with Roger Staubach. And, uh, it just felt like over and over again when I was writing this book, I would see just like with the moonshot and 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 the base of the vodka, you would see you know not obvious recurrences but echoes of things that had happened in the past and some you know obviously uh, you know football and and war are two different things but they had that in common you know a kind of come from behind last moment desperate attempt to to. To win, to win something. Yeah, with a very happy endings in both cases. Right, yeah. Well, it depends on which side you're on. Well, if you're for the Cowboys. <laughs> now, your book gives good coverage not only to the tried and true Texas history that we learned in grade school and junior high, but also the shadow history of scattered slave families, unconfirmed Tejano land titles, and abandoned Indian camps and villages. So from your perspective, what's the proper sensibility for an emotionally intelligent Anglo-American person in 2019 toward the victims of the shadow part of Texas history? Well, I, th- I think, you know, the proper response to history, both for historians themselves or for readers or for anyone who's just curious, is to confront and acknowledge the truth of what happened. And sometimes that truth is not uh, is not all that you know affirming to, to particularly in in this case to you know to Anglo Americans or white people. I mean, there was a lot of uh, a lot of gruesome, brutal stuff that happened in our in our past. But I think you know the only the only responsible thing to do, uh, I think, is to learn and to not try to hide those ugly truths, but to, uh, you know, like I say, to confront them and understand them and, uh, and not, you know, to, to look back on the past with a sense of, uh, of honesty, but not necessarily judgment because 
we don't know who we would have been during that time. We don't, I don't necessarily think I would have been any better than many of the people I write about if I had lived back then. I would have been subject to the same, you know, the same context, the same forces, the same needs. So uh, I just think it's important to, you know, with a kind of generous spirit to look carefully at, at who we were back then and what, what we did and, 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 and take into account, you know, whatever progress or regression has happened since that point. Mm-hmm. Now, you say in the book that the two most notable figures in Texas history are Sam Houston and Lyndon Johnson, and I suspect just about everybody would agree with that conclusion. But let me ask you two questions about those two most notable figures. First, who would you rather have as a friend? And second, who would you rather have on your side in a fight? <laughs> uh, I think uh, I once met Lyndon Johnson very briefly, very, very briefly, when I was like a 14-year-old kid. And uh, he was vice president at the time. And uh, I, I kind of felt like, well, maybe he wouldn't be. Uh, he was famous for, uh, you know, for what was called the Johnson treatment, which was, you know, you know breathing on you and, and pawing at you and stuff like that. But I'm not sure he would have been as great a friend as somebody like Sam Houston, who... Uh, who I think was intensely loyal to his friends and probably was a very interesting conversationalist and would have been ha- fun to hang out with. person I'd want on my side in a fight, I think, would be LBJ because he was so incredibly tenacious and never gave up. Mm-hmm. Now, you detailed two landmark lawsuits in United States Supreme Court history Sweat versus Painter about the integration of the University of Texas Law School and Roe versus Wade, the landmark case on abortion. Now, both plaintiffs in those cases had tough endings to their lives. And did your research reveal how the stress of their lawsuits impacted Heman Sweat and Norma McCorvey? Yes, they both uh, they both had a, a rough time. Um, Heman Sweat uh, was, you know, he was he was a black man who was trying to get into the University of Texas Law School which at that time was, you know, was segregated to say the least, and uh, he did get in, but in very, you know, uh, strict circumstances, and he he was abused, he was maligned. His, uh, you know, something uh, cross was burned in effigy on his lawn, as I recall. He was, uh, his marriage fell apart, his health fell apart, uh, all in the in the service of trying to to make a mark to tr- try to, you know, integrate the UT Law School. Norma McCorvey, who was Roe and Roe versus Wade, was a very troubled person to begin with, a really hard beginning in life. And her, you know, her tough luck continued all the way through her life. Uh, she went back and forth over the issue of abortion. She was, she desperately wanted an abortion when she when she was, became a plaintiff in Roe v. Wade, but never got one because uh, you know the 
the the case outlasted her pregnancy, and she uh, she then turned into a a, a pro life advocate, but never really found her footing, and and just had a, to me a kind of tragic and poignant life. Uh, very, both these people, it's it's tough to read about them because they uh, you know they threw themselves into a fight and uh, and 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 really suffered for it. I think. Mm-hmm. Now, you cover two historic figures in the modern era who changed the world's perception of Texans. First, Jack Kilby, who invented the integrated circuit, and then Barbara Jordan, the Houston congresswoman who wowed the nation in the televised Watergate hearings with, quote, the voice of God, as it was described at the time. So after Kilby and Jordan, is there still such a thing as a stereotypical Texan you know, I'm not sure. It's it's a very interesting question because uh, both people, both Kilby and Barbara, Jack Kilby and Barbara Jordan, push the boundaries of what it means to be a stereotypical Texan. And uh, you know, I think that's an indication of how how big and cosmopolitan and powerful the state has become. I mean, we still sort of cherish those Texas stereotypes. Uh, I remember once years and years ago being in this little coastal village in Madagascar in the far edges of 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 the, of the continent, and I was walking along this this lonely beach at night, and I came across this little Malagasy kid who we were talking a little bit in French, which is what the language, the lingua franca in that part of Madagascar, and he asked me where I was from, and I said Texas. And his eyes got real wide, and he said, "Jr." <laughs> and that was the image of Texas that, that that kid on the other side of the world had. And that stereotype still lives, uh, still very vibrant. But at the same time, you know, there are so many different kinds of people here, and you know, so many people who defy that stereotype, and and yet are as Texan as anybody else. Mm-hmm. Now, getting back to LBJ, in 1960, he shocked the country by agreeing to run as John F. Kennedy's running mate, knowing that being vice president would be a demotion after he had been the master of the Senate. So why did LBJ make the decision to run as Kennedy's vice president? Well, I mean, he was pretty blunt about it. I think he he did, he, you know, he ran the numbers and realized that now, I can't remember the figure right now, but X percent of vice presidents became presidents, you know, when somebody died in office. And uh, he, as he told, uh, as he said at the time, I'm a gambling man. <laughs> he desperately wanted to be president, and he saw that that was probably his, you know, his main chance was to, to be part of this ticket. Now, you paint a very disturbing but I'm sure accurate portrait of Dallas's mindset in the years and the days leading up to the Kennedy assassination in November 1963, which led the rest of the country after the assassination to label us for a while as, quote, the city of hate. So what was it that poisoned the minds and hearts of so many people in Dallas during that dark time? Well, I'm not sure it was just Dallas. I mean, there was a, uh, 
you know, those were dark times, you know, throughout the whole country. You know, the, you know, the threat of communism was still, uh, you know, very alive in people's minds. Uh, there was a, uh, a sense, you know, what was then called the Red Menace. And, you know, you know, particularly through the South and other places, there was a, a terrible fear that communism was on the march and was going to overtake the country. And in Dallas, there were all these characters, including H.L. Hunt, you know, General Walker, Bruce Alger, who sort of embodied that fear and, and, pray, and worked on it and, and you know, advanced themselves uh, through it. But the irony is that, that Kennedy uh, wasn't killed by a right-winger. <laughs> he was killed, killed by a Marxist. And, uh, but anyway, the fact that he died in Dallas, I think, cemented the reputation of the city for a while, for, you know, for too long, as what you termed uh, you know, accurately as the, in the description as the city of hate. Now, here we are at the end of 2019, and at this time when immigration into our country, but particularly into our state, has become such a major political issue, you mention in the book that the city of Houston now has 150,000 Vietnamese residents, and you say they immigrated into Texas not unlike Sam Houston once did, attempting to escape trouble in a distant land and seek a better life here. So with the Texas economy always booming, assuming we continue to have no state income tax and there's still plenty of land available to house future immigrants, what's your prediction on the future population growth of Texas and how are we going to handle it? Well, you know, uh, I'm I'm a recent historian. This is my first book of history. But one of the things I've I've uh, I've noticed is that People want to ask historians to predict the future, and I'm not sure I have a better handle on that than anybody else. But you're right; we're having we have a booming economy. We have no state income tax. We have lots of land, if not not necessarily lots of water. So I think there's I think Texas can handle a lot of people. I think a lot of people are drawn to Texas. You know, the problem is how to handle that population influx uh, responsibly so that we don't further pollute our state and our, our world, um, that we, you know, search for, you know, novel, you know, renewable energy and other ways to, to sort of blunt the impact of, of, of the extractive technologies of the past and, uh, you know, Make make reasonable, responsible decisions about where people live and how they live. Um, you know, I think Texas can can handle that. I think it's a question of leadership. I think it's a question of, you know, happenstance to some degree. But um, it's a big place, and it's always been a welcoming place. And I think it always will be. Now, you end the book detailing your your trip across Texas. And you were playing songs by our Texas singers uh, in your car. You were enjoying nature. You were seeing landmarks, large and small. So after doing all the research and writings on this fabulous book of history uh, and having lived here almost your entire life, do you have any tweaks on Georgia O'Keeffe's assessment of our state? <laughs> 
warts and all, and there are some warts, I still think it's a big, wonderful thing. <laughs> it's, uh, you know, particularly when you're talking about the last part of the book where I just sort of took it upon myself to to just get in my car and drive, which is a very Texan thing to do. And, you know, when you look at the length and breadth of Texas, the vastness of it, the 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 complexity and variety of the geography, the, the different kinds of people that live here. Um, and you, you think about how in some odd way this all hangs together, that there is a kind of national identity to Texas that still lingers. People want to be Texans, uh, you know, sometimes to the great annoyance of people in other parts of the country. But there is something about Texas that that I think truly is unique and truly is binding and in an identity sense to people. Mm-hmm. Well, Stephen, that wraps up the interview, and uh, I want to thank you for that. Uh, you, you've been terrific in, uh, with your tight answers and the responsive answers. And Stephen Harrigan has done something many people, including me, thought was impossible, and that is tell the entire story of Texas history in a single volume, and tell it in a fascinating manner, one great story after another. I hope you enjoyed this podcast. Make sure and catch all of my podcasts at Spotify, iTunes, and SoundClouds. Until next time, remember, as my late great friend Bobby Bregan used to say, you can't hit the ball with the bat on your shoulder. This is Talmadge Boston of the law firm Shackelford, Bowen, McKinley, and Norton. Thanks for listening.